Welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration dash review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. This week, we've got four decisions and four losses for non-citizens, so I reached down to the Northern District of California to add a fifth case. And so I could talk about the monster preliminary injunction win secured by Ayla and Sidley Austin in joining USCIS's application fee hike. What a win. Hope you guys enjoy. First up, we're going to talk a little bit about Immigrant Legal Resource Center et al. v. Wolf et al published in the Northern District of California on September 29, 2020. In this case, argued by Ayla and Sidley Austin, Judge White in the Northern District of California issued a preliminary injunction halting all of the fee hikes that USCIS had implemented and were due to take effect on October 2nd. So, USCIS's new fees, which were set to double and even triple for some applications, do not appear to be in effect unless or until the Ninth Circuit of the Supreme Court vacates the preliminary injunction. Just as an aside, I spoke about this case on John Kosravi's podcast earlier this week, and John and I are going to be having monthly discussions about important cases on his show, so check out his podcast if you haven't already. Also, there are at least two other lawsuits challenging USCIS's fee hike decision, and there were eight amicus briefs filed in this case. The immigration bar is not playing around, and I'm proud to be part of it. So, to the case. Judge White issued a preliminary injunction barring implementation of USCIS's fee hike for immigration applications. And while Judge White found that the plaintiffs were likely to succeed on the substance of their claims against USCIS under the Administrative Procedures Act, his first two reasons for granting the preliminary injunction were based on findings that former acting DHS Secretary Kevin McAleenan and current acting DHS Secretary Chad Wolf, remember, neither have ever been confirmed by the Senate for their role as DHS Secretary, was unlawful for two independent reasons at the time that the final USCIS rules were issued. 
Now, Judge White's reasons were very complicated, based on a bunch of government statutes and DHS executive orders that immigration practitioners don't really need to know. But I guess my question is, following this ruling, and I believe there may have been one or two others like it, isn't it the case that everything that former Acting Secretary McAleenan and current Acting Secretary Wolf have done, not to mention Kenneth Cusinelli at USCIS, who the government hasn't even given really an acting title, doesn't it mean that everything that they've done has no legal effect? Isn't everything they've done improper and non-binding, at least under the rationale used by Judge White, remember, for two independent reasons? Seems like an argument that every immigration practitioner challenging DHS's actions should be making in federal court. As to the substance, Judge White specifically relied upon the fact that DHS seems to, quote, ignore information presented during the notice and comment period that contradicts DHS's beliefs about price elasticity of demand, end quote. Admittedly, I have never bothered to submit comments opposing the multiple regulatory changes that DHS and EOIR have attempted to implement over the last three years, because I believed it useless. I guess I should have, because it matters, at least to federal judges who are conducting the APA review later on. Finally, and among other things, Judge White honed in on the fact that DHS repeatedly stated that it, quote, does not intend to discourage meritorious asylum claims or unduly burden any applicant, group of applications, or their families, end quote. But as Judge White recognized, Congress did not intend USCIS fees to discourage anything, meritorious or not. Congress merely intended that these fees cover USCIS operating costs. DHS's purpose to discourage immigration benefits filings, quote, can be reasonably inferred, end quote, by DHS's stated purpose to not discourage anything but meritorious asylum claims. And that, according to Judge White, USCIS cannot do. So, another round in the district court injunction immigration battles in the era of Trump. And that is Immigrant Legal Resources Center et al. v. Wolf et al. Next, we're going to go to the First Circuit with Zakaira v. Barr, published on October 2nd, 2020. This is a case about asylum from Kenya. Mr. Zakaira is from Kenya, but has been in the United States for over a decade and has U.S. citizen children. Kenya is, of course, next to Somalia, and the terror group Al-Shabaab has committed terrorist attacks inside Kenya for many years. For example, roughly 150 people were killed by Al-Shabaab a couple years ago during an attack at a college in Kenya, and the only people reportedly spared were Muslims who could recite verses from the Quran. Mrs. Akira claimed a fear of persecution in Kenya from Al-Shabaab based on his membership in the particular social group, quote, westernized or Americanized Christian Kenyans who oppose Al-Shabaab, end quote. And he claimed, as he must, that the Kenyan government is either unable or unwilling to protect him from al-Shabaab. He also brought religious-based and political-based claims. The IJ and then the BIA rejected his claims. Primarily, the agency held that the fears that he had were more akin to fears of generalized violence, and that Mr. Zakaira couldn't show that he would be specifically targeted, particularly as his parents and his sister still lived in Kenya, unharmed. Moreover, the agency noted that the Department of State reports that the Kenyan government is active against al-Shabaab militants. The First Circuit found no reversible error. 
First, it recognized that Kenya is over 80% Christian, and that the vast majority, including Mr. Zakaira's family, are not persecuted. Second, it held that Mr. Zakaira didn't fully develop his political opinion-based claims. And third, the First Circuit held that the group, as defined by Mr. Zakaira, is simply too broad or amorphous to be particular, as required under asylum law, as it can include millions of Kenyans of all ages, classes, sexes, etc. So Mr. Zakaira's petition failed. Just a short observation. The BIA did commit some error, though. In denying Mr. Zakaira's claim, the BIA also stated that the evidence does not support a finding of social distinction for the particular social group, quote, Kenyan women who lack the presence of an adult male, such as a boyfriend, husband, or father, to offer protection, end quote. Obviously, this has nothing to do with Mr. Zakaira, and is likely the result of someone at the BIA copying and pasting from another appellate decision for a non-citizen from Kenya. Indefensible mistake from the BIA, but I guess we do all make mistakes sometimes. And in this vein, Mr. Zakaira ended up filing a motion to reconsider with the BIA, which the BIA used to correct the above error, but then to simply reaffirm all its findings against Mr. Zakaira. So I wonder if strategically, it wouldn't have simply been better for Mr. Zakaira to file a petition for review after that first decision with the mistake. And that is Zakaira v. Barr. Next is Hernandez Morales v. Attorney General of the U.S., published by the Third Circuit on October 1, 2020. This is a short case about circuit court jurisdiction, but with a lot packed in. This case involves an application for non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240AB. That form of relief requires a showing that a non-citizen's U.S. citizen or lawful permanent resident spouse, children, or parents will suffer, quote, exceptional and extremely unusual hardship, end quote, if the non-citizen were to be removed. Here, an immigration judge found that Mr. Hernandez Morales' U.S. citizen children would not suffer the required hardship. The BIA agreed. Mr. Hernandez Morales petitioned for review before the Third Circuit, but here's the problem. INA Section 242A2B bars circuit courts from reviewing discretionary denials of many forms of immigration relief, including cancellation of removal. And everyone agrees that whether the hardship that a non-citizen's family will suffer rises to the level of exceptional and extremely unusual is a discretionary denial that circuit courts cannot really review. That is, unless pursuant to INA Section 242A2D, the denial rests on, quote, constitutional claims or questions of law, end quote. If so, then the circuit court can entertain a non-citizen's arguments, even if those arguments relate to a discretionary form of relief like cancellation of removal, otherwise barred under INA Section 242A2B. Mr. Hernandez-Morales' attorney argued that the immigration judge's use of conjecture in reaching the hardship determination and improperly weighing certain evidence during the discretionary analysis, constituted constitutional due process violations. But the Third Circuit rejected that, and therefore held that it lacked jurisdiction to review the petition, under INA Section 242A2B. Put another way, the Third Circuit held that even though Mr. Hernandez-Morales was framing his arguments in constitutional terms, 
Mr. Hernandez-Morales was really asking the court to review a discretionary determination related to cancellation of removal, and that the Third Circuit cannot do under INA Section 242A2B. The court also rejected Mr. Hernandez-Morales' arguments under the Supreme Court's decision last term, Guerrero-Lasprilla. Remember, under that decision, circuit courts retain jurisdiction to review certain mixed questions of law and fact, particularly where there is no dispute over the facts, but rather merely a dispute over application of undisputed facts to a legal standard. In such situations, the Supreme Court said in Guerrero-Lasprilla, circuit courts retain jurisdiction. But the Third Circuit found that Guerrero-Lasprilla's standard was inapplicable here because, quote, a disagreement about weighing hardship factors is a discretionary judgment call, not a legal question, end quote. So the petition was denied. Two final notes. First, the Third Circuit's holding in this case regarding the limits of INA Section 242A2B is largely in accord with, I believe, the view of all the other circuits. But it certainly does not go as far as the Eleventh Circuit's recent en banc decision in Patel v. U.S. Attorney General, a case discussed extensively on the podcast on August 24th. After Patel, the Eleventh Circuit lacks jurisdiction to review any and all non-constitutional or purely legal issues related to cancellation of removal or other forms of relief, including non-discretionary determinations related to the denial of such relief, such as, say, whether a non-citizen satisfied the 10-year continuous residence threshold, or whether the non-citizen is statutorily ineligible for relief due to a criminal conviction. In Patel, the 11th Circuit said that even though those are non-discretionary determinations, because they're related to discretionary relief, such as cancellation of removal, INA Section 242A2B bars circuit court review of those non-discretionary determinations. The 3rd Circuit did not go that far, nor did it cite to Patel, and nor has any circuit. Second, this was the first of two published 3rd Circuit decisions this week. Both are losses for non-citizens. Both narrow circuit court jurisdiction and reject Guerrero-Lasprilla-based arguments, and both were only published because, after the Third Circuit issued the decisions in unpublished form, OIL filed motions requesting their publication, thereby making the decisions binding authority. Maybe the private bar should start doing the same thing with our unpublished wins. And that is Hernandez-Morales, the Attorney General of the U.S. Continuing on with the Third Circuit, we have Marambu, the Attorney General of the U.S., published on October 2, 2020. This is a case about continuances and jurisdiction. Mr. Marambu is a lawful permanent resident from the Dominican Republic who was detained due to a drug distribution conviction. Through counsel, he filed an application for withholding of removal under the Immigration and Nationality Act, or the INA, also known as the Immigration Statutes. Thirteen days later, which included weekends, the IJ held the final merits hearing in this case. Mr. Marambu's attorney requested a continuance to gather more supporting documents, but the IJ denied the continuance. 
The IJ then denied withholding of removal, holding that Mr. Marambu's drug distribution conviction was an aggravated felony and a particularly serious crime that made him ineligible for withholding of removal. The immigration judge alternatively denied withholding of removal for Mr. Marambu's failure to establish the required elements. And because Mr. Marambu did not apply for protection under the torture convention, the immigration judge denied it. Before the Third Circuit, Mr. Marambu challenged the denial of the continuance. But he had serious jurisdiction problems. See, INA Section 242A2C bars circuit courts from reviewing discretionary determinations made by the agency where the non-citizen has an aggravated felony conviction. And the Third Circuit has held in the past that the denial of a continuance is discretionary. Mr. Marambu tried to get around this by arguing that the denial of a continuance in this case constituted a constitutional due process violation, which a federal court always has jurisdiction to review. But the Third Circuit held that the constitutional claims were, quote, insubstantial and frivolous, end quote, primarily because Mr. Marambu did not attempt and cannot show that the denial of a continuance prejudiced him, as due process claims always require. Remember, the immigration judge primarily denied withholding of removal based on the particularly serious crime finding, which a continuance could not really have remedied. The court also held that the Supreme Court's decision last term in Guerrero-Lasprilla does not alter the jurisdiction holding, because unlike the standard for equitable tolling, which Guerrero-Lasprilla reviewed, quote, the denial of a continuance is a discretionary decision which does not raise a constitutional claim or question of law, end quote. Quite the harsh ruling, and quite the quote. No wonder Oil wanted this case published. The Third Circuit also distinguished the Supreme Court's case last term in Nasrallah v. Barr and held that it still lacked jurisdiction under that decision because Mr. Marambu did not bring a Convention Against Torture claim, as was at issue in Nasrallah. So, Mr. Marambu lost his case. Here's a bit more on Nasrallah, though. So I may be wrong, but I'm not so sure about the Nasrallah v. Barr ruling in this case. Granted, Mr. Marambu didn't bring a cat claim, and Mr. Marambu didn't challenge the substance of the denial of withholding of removal, so really the Third Circus discussion of Nasrallah is arguably dicta. But I'm a bit confused by that dicta. Recall in Nasrallah v. Barr, the Supreme Court held that it had jurisdiction to review factual findings underlying the denial of a Convention Against Torture claim, notwithstanding the fact that the non-citizen, like Mr. Marambu here, had been convicted of an aggravated felony, which would otherwise implicate the jurisdiction-stripping provision of INA Section 242A2C. The Supreme Court said in Nasrallah that Section 242A2C didn't apply because based on the plain text and legislative history surrounding that statute, it only bars review of challenges to, quote, a final order of removal, end quote. And under INA Section 101A47A, a final order of removal is a final order, quote, concluding that the alien is deportable or ordering deportation, end quote. But when someone applies for cat protection, they've already been ordered removed. The only question is whether the removal order should be withheld or deferred under the Convention Against Torture. 
So for that reason, again, because the CAT analysis does not require an analysis of a final order of removal, the Supreme Court held that INA Section 242A2C does not bar review of factual findings underlying a denial of CAT protection. Here, the Third Circuit, arguably in dicta, held that that rationale did not apply to withholding of removal under the Immigration and Nationality Act. But I don't think that that's true. It would seem to me that the same logic is true for withholding of removal. There, too, the non-citizen is ordered removed, and the only question is should removal be withheld under the INA? The distinction between whether removal is being held under the INA or the Convention Against Torture seems immaterial to the jurisdiction analysis. In both cases, there already exists a final order of removal, and the non-citizen is seeking to withhold that removal. So it would seem to me that the rationale of the Supreme Court in the Nasrallah decision related to cat protection analysis should apply equally to factual review under the withholding of removal statute at INA section 241b3. If I'm wrong, listeners, send me an email and tell me why. And that is Marimbu, the Attorney General of the U.S. Next, we've got Velez Gaspar v. Barr, published by the Ninth Circuit on September 30th, 2020. This is a case about asylum, and Judge Paez dissented. Ms. Velasquez Gaspar is an indigenous woman from Guatemala and brought asylum claims before an immigration judge in 2010 based on fear of her abusive ex-boyfriend, Brian, who committed terrible sexual violence against her. She didn't report the abuse to police because she believed that the police wouldn't help her because she was an indigenous woman. As relevant to this appeal, the IJ and the BIA held that Ms. Velasquez Gaspar did not qualify for asylum or withholding under the INA because she failed to show that the Guatemalan government was unable or unwilling to protect her, as required under asylum law when the persecutor is not the government. The Ninth Circuit majority affirmed that finding. Applying the deferential standard of review to such factual questions, it noted that, quote, the State Department reports show that Guatemala is working to curb violence against women, end quote. In dissent, Judge Paez reads the country condition evidence on Guatemala as showing, quote, that almost all perpetrators of gender-based violence in Guatemala carry out their crimes undisturbed by law enforcement, even when their victims reach out for help, end quote. So not much good for asylum seekers here. But here are two important observations. First, practitioners, remember the following standard when making your unable or unwilling to protect claim. Quote, because she did not report Brian's abuse, Ms. Velasquez Gaspar needed to show that doing so would have been futile or dangerous. End quote. Finally, Judge Van Dyke, a recent appointee to the Ninth Circuit, concurred in full, but wrote separately as to adverse credibility. See, in this case, the IJ had made an adverse credibility finding, but the BIA did not address it at all. Under the majority, if not all, of the circuit courts as I understand it, this means that the Ninth Circuit could not review the adverse credibility finding because the BIA did not rely upon it. Judge Van Dyke, however, would hold the exact opposite. Quote, 
the BIA has not expressly reversed the IJ's explicit adverse credibility finding. We, who encounter the evidence just as the BIA did, must consider that finding as a fixed feature of the record. End quote. I note that this is a one-judge concurrence, and, as Judge Paez string cites in dissent, Judge Van Dyke appears to be arguing for an interpretation of law that neither the Ninth Circuit nor any circuit to my knowledge has adopted. But it is possibly indicative of law to come. And that is Velasquez Gaspar v. Barr. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.